Hi, I'm Claire Edwards and I'm the percussionist and artistic director of Sydney's new music group, Ensemble Offspring. The Offcast is a new podcast from Ensemble Offspring where I'll be chatting to the musical mavericks, the pioneers, the ones who were often perceived as the outcasts in the world of classical music as they grew and blossomed, but as professionals, it is these people who are the innovators and the ones who are creating much-needed change and diversity for our musical landscape. And today, I'm very honoured to uh, welcome our guest all the way from Berlin, Daniela Strassvogel. And her last name on all our emails comes up as Street Bird, so I can just say that because it's a little bit easier. <laughs> but I always think it's very, very cute that you're Street Bird. And Daniela is a violinist um, by trade, but does lots of other things. And actually, I just asked her if if she was okay to be called a violinist, and um, maybe we can start with that, Daniela. What it means to be a trained classical musician and kind of get to a little bit, you know, mid, mid-career, mid I guess, and, and have branched out a lot during your career. Um, yeah, what does that mean for you as, as a musician? That's a really, it's a really um, pertinent thing, actually, that I think, uh, I think it's interesting that you say mid-career, because I have the feeling that a lot of my colleagues also kind of face the same questions, especially when you're starting you know, you're at a certain point in your personal life and maybe have a family and things like that. And there's just the amount of time that you have is a lot less. Um, And I think also, you know, this thing about uh, defining yourself, we define ourselves through our instruments for so long, especially when we start, when we start playing seriously and start thinking about studying and start thinking about what we want our careers to look like and what kind of music we want to play and who we want to play with. And, and then there's a point where you have been doing it for a very long time. Yeah, I know. It's so weird. (laughs) Yeah. And it's kind of like, okay, I've been doing this for a long time. I kind of know that thing. And what else am I interested in doing? Yeah. So what else are you interested in? (laughs) Well, I think it's, um, I'm interested in making the kinds of, shows and concerts that I would be going to that I would like to go to and I think that's always kind of been been the thing that I've aimed for in playing also but it's also like brought myself and my ensemble into you know kind of super quirky realms of performance art and theatrical stuff and like stuff that's you know fairly well removed from what people would label a concert and it's brought me into this whole new world of uh, I guess you could call it music education but I'm I'm not a big fan of that term I just haven't found a better one yet Um, yeah I know what you mean so working with younger younger audiences yeah kind of making things accessible that maybe seem inaccessible to families yeah and so 
I'm really interested in hearing more about um, your family shows because you mentioned that it's what you do is kind of unique in Germany at least and I would say if it's unique in Germany then it's probably unique in Australia as well. So <laughs> um, I'd really like to hear more about the the model and how it works um, with these young young ears because at Ensemble Offspring and, and, and my view of of how we kind of, I don't know, not educate again, I don't like that word, but how, how we grow this next generation of listeners, it's so important because it's um, they are the next generation and, and they're so open to new sounds and mm-hmm. new ideas mm-hmm. and I think it's a missed opportunity if we don't really focus from the ground yeah. up. You know, I think it's interesting because, you know, I'm from the States and and being from the States, there's like a much more hands-on um, attitude towards audience, like engaging with your audience. And I assume that that exists in Australia as well. It's also kind of one of the byproducts, I think, of not having like a really fully state-funded um, system of music production. It's true. That's so true. Cause I used to live in Holland and I, it was really clear to me when I came back to Australia, the difference in just the, the amount of energy that is, has to be put into both marketing and also the presentation side of your show, um, versus in Holland where it was, everything was so well funded and it was kind of like, <laughs> we're putting this on, come or not, we yeah, don't really care. Exactly. You know, we're still like, going to get paid and it makes Tickets cost 50 cents. Like the whole yeah. show costs 30,000 euros, but it's just, it doesn't yeah. like, we don't need to sell tickets. Um, yeah. yeah. And that, I think that that means that there's like a really, really rich and, um, an important tradition of, of interaction with the audience that exists in in countries that happen to have like you know not as not as much state support of the arts that like it exists I mean it's not like it, it's never it's hasn't been done in Germany it's been done for a long long time and all institutions have their like have their programs for families and for kids and stuff but still what's what I see it really missing is in this kind of free scene that I like new music scene free scene that I kind of roll around in here in Berlin and it's just that the ensembles that that make all this cool music and do all these cool shows they just don't have the resources to do education programs in addition yeah because it does take a lot I mean we we sort of attempt it at Ensemble Lost Spring and it, it takes Yes, yeah, so it's almost like another arm of a company that you need yeah. to kind of keep it going. It's a, yeah. lot of, a lot of resources. Yeah, like if you're an opera company, you'll have like two to five people just working on that. And if you're a free ensemble, you don't have, you don't have everyone's already completely overworked and underpaid as it is and yeah. just trying to get your shows on. So one of the things that I started, which has actually been um, really well received, it's, it's a series called Schrumpf. I can show you. I have a poster for it over there on my wall. Oh, cute. <laughs> <So> Schrumpf. <laughs> um, and it started like uh, a couple of weeks before the pandemic, um, before the pandemic hit Berlin. But it's a series that just basically um, takes current productions by Berlin groups and does a family-friendly version of it. And it's like, I go, there's a lot of colleagues that I've known for a long time. I go to rehearsals, we talk about the piece. I like look at um, 
I look at videos or listen to recordings if they exist and and I basically find ways that we can kind of shorten it. Schrumpf means to shrink. So we like uh, we yeah. like we make it a bit shorter. We do interactive stuff like we get everybody up and moving. Um and we also like I always plan for stretches where there's where it gets a little bit difficult where like the music is a little bit too long and maybe not that much happens and maybe it takes 15 minutes and everybody has to sit through it so like we go through these like really really accessible really fun um really physical things and we also go into spaces where like the art is not that accessible and the art is a yeah. little bit uncomfortable and um and it's great. I mean, it's been... Um, wow, that is such an yeah. awesome idea. And do you present it? Yes, I present it. I write the grants and I do the moderation and I do everything, yeah. That's and, so, I, it's and, so, and it's yeah. such a great idea, like, using using the content that's already out there in a way. So you're yeah. not, like, kind of going, okay, what's our family show going to be from, exactly. from scratch, you know? Yes. That's such a good idea. Yes, because honestly, I mean... You know, it's, you don't, honestly, a lot of kids shows are like so pandering and they're so yeah. they can be great and fun and stuff, but sometimes they are so boring. And, yeah. and I also think of it as a way to enable adults to, with kids to come and see something that maybe, you know, it's not so easy to get out of the house for an eight o'clock show or you can't afford a babysitter or whatever and you're like take the kids and go to a four o'clock version of the show and you'll see some serious art yeah um, have you been able to do it live very much because of the pandemic mm, we did we started at the end of february in 2020 so we did two shows they were just one week apart that were live and then we had a little window in september of last year where we did one more live show um the first one was with Adapter, actually. Oh, great. And, yeah. Their and music then, would be perfect for that. Sort of yeah, thing. they had five new compositions, actually. That was really fun. We had all of the composers there. Um, oh, great. It was, yeah. And so we did three of them live. We did two live interactive streams using Zoom, where we hooked up Zoom to, like, super high-quality um cameras and had amazing technicians and like great sound engineers and um with the splitter orchestra which is this amazing improvising orchestra yeah i know them yeah Yeah. is simon still involved with them simon phillips he was he's a australian pianist who um, lives in berlin because clayton thomas used to be involved Mm -hmm. in the splitter orchestra but he's moved since moved back to Australia. I don't. Th- I don't think I met a Simon last year. Yeah. I think the um, they have various. They have people who play pianos in various <laughs> various stages of dismemberment. Yeah, um, <laughs> and none of those was was. A, uh, but maybe, yeah, maybe there was a Simon. Because we have it. Funnily enough, in Australia, we have a group called the Splinter Orchestra. <laughs> Which I think I, I've, I need to ask Clayton actually, but I think they're they one came out of the other in terms of like they're very That's similar hilarious. entities, and because so the Australian one is called Splinter. Yeah, yeah, Splitter actually means uh, splinter in German. Ah, 
Well, I think, I think it's pretty related. Yeah, yeah. And because yeah. they've got a lot of similar... Because there was this period, maybe it's not so much at the moment because of the whole pandemic thing, where Australian... Um, like improvisers, new music improvisers would go, would move to Berlin. Mm-hmm. And there were so many of them just going from one, you know, side of the world to the other. And so there was this big cross pollination of many Australians in Berlin. Yeah, yeah that's, yeah, it's true. There are a lot of, in Splitter also, there are a lot of native English speakers. And I also did have the feeling that there were a number of Australians, but we had this like, and it was really, really intense. We were basically like, because it was the middle of the pandemic, we were like dividing, they, they've got 24 players, I think, and we divided them up into three groups. And for each group, it was like, they arrived, they had to be there for the shortest amount of time possible. And like, it was like, like airing out the room and disinfecting everything. It was like, there was this yeah. kind of insane production. You sort of do it once yeah. and you're like, uh, yeah. Never again. Yeah. <laughs> Why that would was, I do that? That was interesting. <laughs> yeah. But it was great, yeah. and everyone was really happy because there was no way. Like, people were doing live streams, but they were doing live streams that were just being shot out into the ether. And, and this way, you actually saw the faces of the people listening, and like, we did interactive things through the camera. Um, we would like all make sounds together and stuff. We did yeah, one with Kaleidoscope okay. also. Um, yeah, so Kaleidoscope's your kind of string orchestra. Yeah, Kaleidoscope's is the ensemble that I that I uh, have been a member of since it was founded 15 and years that's ago. how we first met. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which you forgot <laughs> when I saw you in Berlin a few years I ago. I <laughs> know. My memory's yeah. like a sieve. I might that's forget it again. <laughs> oh, don't. Yeah. No, you can't. No, I won't forget <laughs> Yeah, um, that was crazy. That was. I was just going to say, I I did Zoom concerts last year. It, it wasn't. My I saw idea one of them. I saw. Yeah. Mm. And we and it was the same thing that it, it sort of caused a bit of a stir for the same reason that it was like I made it small audiences see everyone's faces on the screen, and then I did sort of like Q and As between the pieces, so I would ah. unmute everyone. And then they would like, then I'd say like, what, you know, what did you think of that piece? Does anyone have any questions or thoughts? And um, it was because it was the first lockdown, I guess the novelty of the whole thing was still kind of fresh and, and people really loved this idea that they could sort of like see their friends or people that they would see it on some of the spring concerts or whatever on the screen and kind of chat. And yeah. um, it was really the worst moment though, was when my dad who hadn't done a Zoom thing at that point yet, um, kept his microphone on accidentally and was eating <laughs> chips. Oh, and it no. was just so embarrassing because, like, I could hear the chips and so could everyone else. And I was just like – and I'm, like, trying to check in saying, Dad, turn your microphone off or stop eating chips. And, like, I had all these, like, quite high-up arts people saying, like, whoever's eating the chips, turn your <laughs> microphone off. It was so embarrassing. Oh my anyway, god! It was very yeah. Funny. No, and that's the thing, right? With Zoom, you have to have. I assume you didn't have someone being like the moderator, switching Not off a, those microphones one at a time. I was doing that. Was the first, very first one. So I was doing it myself, and then after that, I had. Yeah. I always had a person there to do that because, of course, that was like a year and a half ago. Like we're so Zoom savvy now. <laughs> I know. So, yeah, but nobody understood how it worked. A year and no, a half they ago. didn't. And so what else is, um, 
what else is news like from the world of kaleidoscope or I'm always interested in talking to people about what the most kind of amazing music they've heard lately is or because we um you know in Australia we're in this kind of vacuum we're really far away Ensemble of Spring, in a way, especially in Sydney, we're, we're sort of doing it. So I don't get to go to many other people's concerts. I just yeah. I just play them. And um, that's the one thing I love about going to Berlin and Europe, like just soaking it up. But we haven't been able to do it for so long. I know. Um, so I, I will be totally honest that I do not get out of the house very much. But I do get to play with Kaleidoscope. And with Kaleidoscope, there's a couple of like really really lovely collaborations that that we've started working on um one of them that i'm unfortunately actually not playing in myself is ernst albrecht stiebler i don't know if you know his name yeah he i've is, heard of him yeah so he's this like kind of older generation berlin composer who writes really meditative music um that's it's just really beautiful and he wrote a new piece for kaleidoscope and they were just rehearsing it and i think it's going to be performed next year so maybe i'll be able to be at the concert or perform in a concert at least and that was something it's always so nice you know when young composers are wonderful but it's really there's something really special about working with a much older composer i mean he's in his late 80s who's um who's just who's just been around for so long we've done a lot of things with him and it's just like a really a really lovely relationship so and 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 so easy you know what I mean like there's that ease of working with someone who really knows how to write for the instruments and yes structure and get totally timing and balance and orchestration Mm -hmm. and all those things that you often and when you kind of understand like what his aesthetic world is and so like you see the score and it makes sense like you it's like it feels like yes I can imagine what this sounds like and and that mutual appreciation is really nice yeah, because we work at a whole heap with young composers as well. And and like you say, like there's something really um, satisfying about feeling like you're, yeah, help, helping them understand, you know, the ins and outs of writing for, for your instruments and stuff. Mm-hmm. But it, it can be really, um, yeah, like <laughs> a one-way street sometimes. It can feel very much like you're, yeah. you're giving, giving, giving and... Um, it's often a while until you see the results really come to fruition. Um, and it's, it's, you're playing the long game, really, aren't you, when you're working with, with yeah. emerging composers? Yeah, and it's also, um, there's always this tension between, I mean, I always, I always find it to be a tension between like what the composer has written especially when somebody's writing for an instrument that they maybe don't don't play themselves, what they've written, yeah. what they imagine it will sound like, what they want it to sound like, and what comes out when you do physically do exactly the thing that they ask you to do. And it's yeah. like not the same thing. Or sometimes, I mean, if you take someone like Lachenmann, who, who doesn't really play violin or cello, but he, he will pick up the violin and cello and he's got all this amazing this palette of sounds that he's developed himself that nobody else, you know, had, had really notated in that way or, or, um, collated, you know, it's not that the sounds didn't exist before, but, but he really developed it and named it all and gave it all signs and made a really clear notation. Um, 
you know, on the one hand, you have someone who, if you really do what he tells you to do with the instrument, which is sometimes maybe counterintuitive, then you will get out what you want. And then working with young composers, sometimes it doesn't. It, sometimes it just doesn't happen. And then there's this tension between like, I promise you, I am doing my best to get what yes. you want. Yeah. And they're like, you're not doing what I want. <laughs> And yeah, it's, it's so true. And it's, yeah, I was actually giving a class in Detmold about this very subject, like how to give feedback to composers when you're a performer, which mm-hmm. I just think is hilarious because I'm like, um, we can't really generalize because composers are people and everyone's different, you know, like in terms of how they take on your feedback and stuff. Mm-hmm. But then the funny thing was the composer who was the example, like he was in the class and then they played this percussion ensemble piece by him. And we'd just been talking about it for ages and every bit of feedback I gave him, he was like, no, I like it like that. No, that's how it's meant to be. And I was just like, oh my God, you're the one, you're the one who just doesn't want to listen to any feedback. Cause he had like five sharps going to six flats, like the whole time through the piece. And I was like, why, why this key signature? And he's like, it's got yeah. to do with the resonance of the, you know, there was a whole story. There's like a whole um, theoretical underpinning. <laughs> and I said, you know, sometimes you just have to leave the concept behind and know mm-hmm. that the concept still is going to come through, even if you change the key by a tone. And he was like, no. <laughs> and I was just like, okay, well, yeah. I guess we'll just move on. <laughs> okay. This piece is not going to be performed that often. Well, precisely. And that's what me and his teacher were saying, like that professional musicians don't have five hours to get things in our muscle memory. And it's not that we're lazy. It's just that that's not realistic. You know, we just, that's not how we work. So yeah, that's true. Anyway, (laughs) that's totally true. Um, Yeah. But another, but one other, one other collaboration that I wanted to mention, because it's been, um, it's been going on for a bit over a year. There's an American composer named Ethan Brown, who I don't know if you know his name. He's from no, California originally, yeah. and he sort of shuttles in between Belgium and um, Brussels and Berlin. And he's been working with Kaleidoscope on a whole bunch of different pieces that are all really, um, they're kind of like collective tuning meditations. Like we, like a lot of, there's a lot of sort of Pauline Oliveira's um, tuning meditations kind of flowing into it. And a lot of working with musical material that we bring ourselves. So a lot of stuff that like, I don't know, there was one piece, we did a music theater piece where they said, bring a piece you love and a piece you hate. And we got like, all sorts of stuff from like spirituals to um, I think a movement from a Bach solo violin sonata and then there was like some Puccini and there's just like total potpourri of stuff and then working with it in a kind of improvisatory way to make like musical scenes which is so interesting because it's it's really almost like an oral tradition of writing music there's no actual music written down in this case but it's like it's almost like a kind of musical musical coaching or like searching together and that's been a really really interesting experience and very freeing also yeah I realized when people ask us to bring our favorite music like basically or they ask us to improvise and like also improvise in space and like move around and all this stuff we tend to put down our instruments and just use our voices <laughs> like we, like you were saying about being a violinist like everybody's a singer all of a sudden everybody's yeah. a singer 
<laughs> wow. And it must be really great for the group dynamic as well. Just to, I mean, that's why it's so great doing new things all the time with, with your colleagues and your friends because it does keep it fresh all the time and it does sort of make you closer through every collaboration, I find. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. So you, um, I probably should have started here, but you moved to Berlin almost 20 years ago on a Fulbright scholarship. And I just wanted to end actually by asking a little bit about your family and what sort of inspiration they've been for you and why you um, went, why you chose to go to Berlin on your Fulbright scholarship. Yeah, so I moved to Berlin when I was um, 23. Um, about to turn 24 and that was actually funnily enough the exact same age that my grandfather was when he fled Berlin in 1933 and went to the United States Um, and my grandfather was actually born in Warsaw and when he was a really little kid I think two or three years old his mother moved with him to Berlin and so they grew up uh, kind of as yeah, Polish immigrants in Berlin, and he went to went to the university that ended up being the same university that I went to in Berlin, and kind of had a burgeoning career as a composer and a pianist and a conductor, and and then saw the way the wind was blowing in 1933 and had an opportunity to leave for the states, and he left, and uh, didn't ever set foot in Germany again until I believe he was in his in his 80s I think yeah he moved to New York he didn't go straight to New York but he moved to New York eventually and and I had I had been studying in the states and uh doing a master's in Cleveland and I really really didn't know what to do with myself after my master's I um I didn't want to continue to get a DMA. I didn't want to go back to New York. I couldn't think of any other place in the States that I wanted to be. And I kind of thought, Berlin's a cool city. (laughs) Maybe I'll try and go there. So so I applied for a Fulbright um, and was lucky enough to get Could you speak German then? The funny thing was I actually had a... I had had a German boyfriend in the States, but he and I only ever spoke English. My dad spoke fluent German because my dad had also worked in Germany quite a lot as an opera director. Um, And I'd heard a lot of German. I'd been in Germany a lot, but I couldn't really speak it. And then I started taking German classes, I think, when I was doing my master's. So I could could kind of speak it. Yeah. But it was was a steep learning curve when I got to Berlin. It was the difference between, like... Well, you're so fluent now, of course. You have to be. It's amazing. It's been, yeah... That's been a long, long time now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you came here, I mean, not here, to where you are, Berlin. Um, Not where I am, unfortunately. Um, To study the, well, what what was your Fulbright about? My Fulbright was actually about um, the music of the Entartete composers. So it's kind of the group that my grandfather belonged to and... He had studied composition with Franz Schrieker, who was like the big, the big um, important composer, especially opera composer of the time. He had like one of the most important composition classes in Europe. 
<clears throat> and yeah, and it was just my idea was I'm going to come to Berlin and I'm going to like look up all of this music. There were a bunch of musicologists doing research into into you know Jewish composers who had kind of gotten um, knocked off, knocked out of the history books by the Nazi regime. Yeah. I was going to do all this research and start playing this music. And I did a little bit of research, but basically what I really started doing was I started going to master classes by like the Ensemble Moderne and the Klangform Wien. And I started playing, I'd already been playing some new music in Cleveland, but it was nothing like the new music that I came into contact with in Berlin. It was like yeah. so exciting. And I heard Lachenmann's music for the first time and I'd like met Kurtag and, and, I don't know, played some of his pieces for him and he like ripped me a new one. And it's just like all of all of this, it was like a totally different musical world. Something I assume you also had some an experience kind of like that when you In came Holland. to Holland. Yeah. 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 It's just aesthetically, it's just it's just a different universe. And it's so cool yeah. that that also exists, right? That it's really yeah. like that there are different styles and different places and it's not just one big mass of like the same new music. Yeah, and I mean, just... I guess it's getting a little bit more that way now because of the internet and everything and, and it's much, like when oh, we moved right. overseas, I guess, um, there, the internet didn't really exist so much. Things were more <laughs> siloed. <laughs> yeah. And I, I don't think it's a negative thing that they're getting slightly less siloed, but... Um, yeah, you're right. Like even the German sound world is is still different and more edgy, I think, mm-hmm. and you can get away with doing, you know, more and and not feeling like you're going to offend people whereas in Australia we're a little bit behind. I would say in terms of our general appreciation of sound worlds that aren't just nice. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I miss that sometimes. Um because in Holland, anything went as well. And I think that goes back to that same um, same concept of, of funding, you know, that, that mm-hmm. state-funded approach means that composers and performers don't need to worry about their audiences so much. They just, they just do what they want to do. Mm-hmm. And then you get these, like, ivory towers where, like, super weird shit happens. On the other hand, what's also which is really interesting, <laughs> which is Darmstadt, but what's interesting is that they're also new, you know, because of this internet and internationalism and all this stuff, there's also like, you know, this, this like very academic German new music can also be extremely one note and there's more of the kind of popular um, strain of new music coming into the sound world here a little bit also like there are also just some um some composers like I don't know right now I'm, I think of Jesse Marino and yeah. um you know Thomas Meadowcroft I assume who also who's calls, Australian like, a big, who's Australian and yeah. also a Berliner and um yeah. caused a big kerfluffle at Donau Eschingen when was that it must have been like three years ago he had this orchestra piece there that like really ruffled some feathers um why because because why because it was did not sound like new music there were chords and there were harmonies and like people were shocked and horrified um did they actually boo 
Uh, I think they did, yeah. I was I was yeah. in Donau Eschingen um, with Kaleidoscope. We did another project that majorly ruffled some feathers there. Um, but because we were rehearsing, I wasn't able to go hear Thomas's piece, but I remember we, we chatted about it um, shortly afterwards, and I, I do believe that there was actual booing, because people are serious, and like... There's none of this night polite applause that'll that'll be a little yeah. bit shorter if they don't like your piece. Like they're gonna boo you. I know. I lo- I mean, I sort of love that about Germany. Like we, I mean, it wouldn't happen in America either, would it? Like, and, and certainly not in <laughs> no, England so much. So. You know, where everyone's kind of like, oh, that was nice, yes. and then they might say to their friend, oh God, I hated that. But um, in Australia, like even our even our critics, like our our music critics. Give, seem to give everyone four stars and just say it was good, you know, and it's just like, where's the criticism here? You know, like, can we talk about yeah. what you like and what I like and why we don't see eye to eye? Like, that's so exciting. Mm-hmm. That's true. So it's good yeah. in a way. It is. It is. And I think it's good because um, it's, you know, the musical language has to keep growing, doesn't it? It just has to. And it's, good for it to have some kind of connection to to the outside world because it's such a little tiny teeny bubble that we live in I know and we don't we can't just sit in some little niche and go well we're just going to be separate to the rest of the world's music making because no no music making is separate because one what you hear informs what what you compose you know and and it should I think so I I do agree with that and I think, um, you know, for my feeling as much variation as possible is is the key and not to Mm -hmm. get too stuck in one style because that's boring too. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't mean that we all have to like, you know, play, I don't know, the Harry Potter music on tour 700 times. Or Max Richter. (laughs) Absolutely Is he actually German or is he American? I always thought so. I yeah, I do too. The, but like, did if, you go to the states? I think so. But if you compare like the music of Max Richter to like Dono Ashian and Detmold, like it's pretty <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Like two massive extremes. There, there are exceptions to every rule, I guess. No, I know. It was like when I lived in Holland, and I always thought it was hilarious that oh what's his name again that there was like the new music was so extreme the scene was awesome there was so much going on and then meanwhile there's this violinist from southern holland that that dude with the long hair who plays like all the 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 solo he's got his own group and he like plays really really cheesy like classical music i don't know Um, i'll think of it in a minute but um, I, I always thought that's such an oxymoron that that guy like exists and is oh, so wait, popular. His, is his name David something? No, I don't think so. I'll he's think not of like it. a and rock he's... star violinist, like bare chested and like, <laughs> no. playing like cheesy. No. Okay, then I'm thinking of no, something else. No, you keep talking. I'm going to look it up. I listen to this other <laughs> podcast where, where they do this all the time. Andre Rieu. Oh, Andre Rieu. He's not German? No, I think he's. I think he's from the ah, south of Holland. But he's like, yeah, he's like, oh my god, he's like the Netflix of ca- classical music. He's like, yeah, he's got these yeah, huge Dutch teeth. violinist. Yeah, he's Dutch, and he's got these he's... women in ball gowns with their violins, and he is a huge star. People love him. I know, but it's just so weird that like. <laughs> 
also I think it's hilarious that like we're all called classical musicians right and like yeah by by how we're named we should all be kind of the same like what we're doing <laughs> what we're doing and what we care about and they it's just so broad and I always feel so um frustrated with with this labeling thing that that yeah. there are not better labels to to kind of say well we're classically trained on our instrument but when we don't like what Andre Rieu does or we don't want to do that like mm-hmm. it's just I find it really weird but do you like do you define yourself as a, a classical musician primarily or like contemporary like how how do you well, define I don't, yourself but the, the problem with Australia is that contemp the word contemporary is used to describe pop music ah so if if i say i'm a contemporary percussionist there people are going to go oh so you play drum kit and like congas and Mm -hmm. stuff i don't know Mm -hmm. you play pop music if i say contemporary classical which is another way of saying it people kind of go well what is that Mm -hmm. and then we started using this word art music to kind of umbrella like jazz or improvisation or new music improvisation or whatever Um, but the issue with the word art music is, is again, that it doesn't really, most people don't really know what Mm. it is still. And so, um, I, I just struggle with this, this, the, the naming of, um, like us as musicians who spent 20 years perfecting our craft or more versus the pop musician who's a singer songwriter who picked up a guitar Mm -hmm. and is actually a poet and an amazing singer but not mm-hmm. really a musician, but they're obviously much more, they have more overnight yeah. success than we ever would. Um, and like, but they're called a musician too. And then, so how do you sort of, I don't know, like not that we have to make differences between people, but it's just, it's a tricky, tricky thing when you don't want to be playing in orchestras. You don't want to be specializing in Mozart. So, so what do you call what you do? And it's a thing that I think a lot of people just aren't aware that it exists probably like nice um i don't know i i don't get asked that question anymore probably because i'm over 40 now but i used to get asked a lot of time people would ask me what i do and i would say i'm a musician or i'm a violinist and then they would say oh that's great and um and what do you do for work you know and (laughs) i feel like no i actually that's what i pay my i pay my rent with that that's what i yeah I always say that um, my Tinder profile a few years ago was I um, hit things for a living. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. I got a partner out of it. Hey, see, so it worked. It worked. That's lovely. My younger daughter wants to wants to learn drums. By the way, no, I was like, really. Oh, I don't know. It's just so annoying to listen to. And then you have to schlep them around in your car when she starts to get gigs. Do you really want that? <laughs> oh, God, I would so love to have a drummer, a percussionist in the family. But you're, I'm sure you're right. I'm sure you're right. Like, I've always said, never, ever, ever let her play the harp for that very yeah, reason. or the tuba. Or the tuba. Or honestly, no, but you flute. should let. Of course, <laughs> of course, you should let her if that's what she wants to do. But I'm just warning you for this is your forewarning that okay, <laughs> it could get messy. Be a life of pain the next fifteen years. Be. Yeah. Okay. Hey, on that was such an awesome chat, and thank you so much for putting off your dinner um, to to chat to oh, me. Thank so you. Go and eat, Danielle. I will go have dinner. 
And yeah. you have a lovely day. Enjoy your day. I hope you're not too and exhausted. And I'll have breakfast. And um, yeah. I'll see you in Berlin soon. Yes, please. I hope. Come back over. <laughs> you know, we're accepting vaccinated travelers now, so. Yeah. So it's exciting. We, I, I, we didn't plan to go to Europe next year because I just felt like it was too risky, you know, when we had to make our plans for the year. For yeah, the of course. Um, but the year after, for sure. Yeah. Definitely. So I'll see you in... 23 then, I guess. 23, yeah. <laughs> okay. Take care. Okay, bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Offcast with Claire Edwards. For more information on the innovative people and musical projects discussed in this episode, take a look at the show notes below. We'd love to hear from you, so please get in touch by emailing admin at ensembleoffspring.com. And if you're interested in supporting the Offcast and the important creative work we do at Ensemble Offspring, you can donate via our website. Keep listening for more conversations with musical mavericks.